All right, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, I do want to clarify one thing if you're visiting with us and you're wondering, which book of the Bible is wise blood? Uh, that's not a Bible study, that's a book study. And one of the reasons that we do those kinds of things, we look at literature. Any of you who follow me on anything uh, know that I have a deep appreciation for literature and how literature helps us see the world, particularly the brokenness of the world. Um, so we see that as kind of a, a way to missionally engage, to, to deal with some of the ways in which authors that other people are reading and the way that they look at the world is important to them. So just wanted to clarify that so there was no wonderment as to uh, have we lost our minds in thinking that Flannery O'Connor wrote something from the Bible. No, we have not. Not there. Other places maybe. All right, so as we turn to Daniel chapter 7, um, this is, as we talked about last time, this is the beginning of the, the portion of the book that's going to get much more into that which we refer to as apocalyptic literature and prophecy. And uh, for many of you, you've just kind of been going, yeah, 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 first six books of Daniel. I want to know who the little horn is with the little teeth in the mouth and all that. I want you to clarify all that. Well, I am going to fail you miserably, as has every other um, theologian and scholar much greater than I who can't seem to agree on what all of those things mean. However, I do think there's a way of reading these things and looking at these things that is very, very beneficial for God's people and God's church, because otherwise we would lop off the end of the story, right? Revelation is filled with all of these types of images. This is why it's important for us to read it in context for Daniel, because as we, we are going to see, all of this stuff shows up later. It shows up in Revelation. It shows up uh, even sooner than that in the Gospels as well. And so um, it is an important thing for us to look at and to keep in right perspective. Having said that, I want to read a quote to you from Ian Duguid, which I think helps frame how we should think about prophecy uh, in apocalyptic literature. If you would give your attention uh, just to, to this quote, which is in your bulletins. Apocalyptic literature thus proclaims a theology of hope to those whom the world has marginalized. It reminds us that God is presently on the throne and that he will ultimately triumph. In the meantime, whatever the present cost may be in terms of suffering, obedience to God is the only way. Though the propagandists for the present world order, uh, present world order proclaim that our resistance is futile, the apocalyptic writer refuses to be assimilated to this world's way of thinking. He has seen heaven opened, and he knows how the story ends. That is incredibly important because we do, we get tangled up, don't we? I mean, there's an entire um, American evangelical theology that is based on trying to figure out who are the beast kingdoms. In fact, um, I had a, a very close friend who gave me this giant poster that had it all figured out, right? Um, and I'm, I'm sure you're thinking, do you still have that? Could we see that? No, I don't still have it. I don't know what happened to it. Um, but you could put it up and you could, I mean, it did. It showed who all the beast kingdoms were and it had little people's faces and Hitler kind of shows up a couple different times. Huh? Kind of freaked me out. But, uh, and so, so th there's a sense in which we get so tangled up with um, those details that we miss the detail that is most important which is that God is sovereign, and he rules. Kingdoms will rise and fall. This is one of the reasons they don't identify the beast kingdoms. Do you know why they don't get identified? Because they don't matter. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter that you even know who they are. You'll know who they are by the persecution that they exact on the church. Right? It's clear who's for you and who's against you most of the time. 
Even when we try to blind ourselves and say, no, 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 I, I think he's had a recent conversion. But I digress. I'll keep moving. But, but what, what's really kind of going on is that God is showing it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter what they say. It doesn't matter what they do to you. That will not be the end of the story. What is, what is important is you cling to the sovereignty and faithfulness of God, that you cling to the crucified in all things. Because our opinions are so varied on this, right? Is there a unified opinion right now in the church as to who we should vote for and what we should do? No. In fact, um, if you want to get Chris Byerly really wound up this morning, ask him his current opinions on the situation. He's pretty fired up about it. Uh, and so, but, but even being fired up about that, what, what should Chris cling to? What, what gives him any hope at all? Because all he's saying is that there, we, the church, can't even seem to agree on it. So if we can't agree on it, on who to vote for and all that kind of stuff, and who's on whose side and all this mess, what can we agree on? God is sovereign and Christ reigns, right? That's going to solve all of it anyway. So this is important for us to, as we're entering into the apocalyptic purpose, uh, apocalyptic section of Daniel, it's important for us to keep that in mind. That doesn't mean that we can't figure a few things out, and there's not some things that are not helpful to us, but at the end of the day, that's not what's going to be important is the identification of who this giant bear is that's lopsided and got ribs in his mouth. Um, I, that's, I don't think that's Russia, actually, um, but, but it doesn't, that part doesn't matter. What matters is that God is sovereign over and victorious over every kingdom that will rise and fall. And the reason you need to know that is because if you are a follower of Christ at some point, and this is the part I don't like, so let me just say right up front, already I don't like this sermon. So I know you're not going to like it. And, and I don't like the conclusion. But I'm going to give you the conclusion first so you can go ahead and tune out or figure out what you want to do from here. Um, is that if you are in Christ, you will suffer. At some point, it is guaranteed if you are in Christ, you will suffer. And there is no part of this fallen world that is in agreement with you. I can't help but think of the, the quote by R.C. Sproul that, that said, and I read this probably 15 years ago when I started doing some cultural engagement stuff uh, through art, is, is he said, listen, as long as the church remains on her reservation, she will be met by the world with a benign smile. As soon as she steps off her reservation and tries to change anything in this world, she will be met with a snarl and a sword. You just need to know that. There's no political system that, that is interested in being subject to Christ as king. No worldly political system, no worldly political leader. They will feign for a while for as long as you can vote and, and give and all that kind of stuff. They'll take what you have to give, but when it comes time to bow, it will be you who bows, not them, except at the end of time when every new bow. And every tongue will confess, and that is good news for us. So the, we have this question, what is the primary purpose of biblical prophecy? The primary purpose of biblical prophecy is to comfort God's people. Not confuse, not make you stay up late at night. Do you guys remember Billy Ray Cyrus? Uh, amazing singer-songwriter, for those of you who don't know. You should really look his stuff up. He went through a season as, as, a, as a professing believer where he almost went crazy. You may be thinking, did he come back out of that yet? I mean, like he was taping, 
Every news channel, this was kind of at the start of the 24-hour news cycle, back when things were just starting. So he didn't have a lot of choices like we have now. He didn't have like every conceivable news service from Al Jazeera, which is some news service of some kind, all the way to CNN and MSNBC and Fox and all these things. And so he only had a couple of channels to choose from, but he would tape them because he, and he couldn't sleep at night because he was looking for the fulfillment of prophecy. He was watching every event, trying to keep up with everything that was going on in the world, and he just about went crazy. And you would, too, if you were trying to keep up, by the way, and think that you could be conversant on everything that's going on in the world. It's happening so fast, and there's so much spin. I don't even know how we would be conversant and confident in what we are reading anyway. Who's telling us the truth? The BBC? Reuters? Who? It's all spin, it feels like. So... So there's a sense at which, for us, biblical prophecy is not meant to do that to us. It's not meant to make us try to figure out what the numbers mean and all this kind of stuff, but instead to comfort us and say, those numbers will rise and fall. Those kings, those kingdoms will come and go. Those beasts will thrash about for a season. But the Lord our God is sovereign, and he is faithful, and they can only go so far. And that is important to us, and that's important to Daniel. Remember where he is. He's in exile. Now, this is also the part of the book where it goes out of sequence. This is actually going to return us to the first year of King Belshazzar. And if you remember, Belshazzar followed Nebuchadnezzar. And if you remember, Belshazzar didn't end well. But we're returning to that first year, and God has something to say to Daniel because Daniel needs comforting, right? I mean, he's seen... Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar has this amazing experience. Uh, as we've said, some people think he'll be in heaven. Some people aren't so sure. Like I said, I hope he'll come running up and say, I didn't think you guys were going to get in either. Uh, but it's kind of how I hope it goes. But it sounds a lot like a conversion. Like he goes through this whole being reduced into a beast. If you remember, he had the long claws and he had the long hair. And he was just a mess. He was drooling and eating grass like an ox. And, and so... And so he comes to his senses and he repents. And so you have that king who then issues an edict that says, hey, you can't say anything bad about Daniel's God. Daniel's God is the God that is. He is the, his kingdom will be forever. And then Belshazzar rolls in. And if you remember, he calls for uh, all of the stuff to be pulled out that used to be in the temple of the Lord so they could have a giant orgy, a giant party, a giant just debauchery on the eve of Babylon being overthrown by the, the Medes and the Persians, right? So he, he didn't even, he didn't care. He was arrogant all the way to the end. And even when the hand showed up and wrote on the wall, he didn't care. He's like, all right, Daniel, I have a robe of purple and some, some sweet jewelry, and you can be in charge. I don't care. Because he was that arrogant. He thought he could just do whatever he wanted. So this is, takes us back to the beginning of that particular reign, and it's good for us to keep all those things in mind. So if you would give your attention to the reading of God's Word, we'll read the first eight verses. It says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. And then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. 
and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard with, with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. All right, so this vision is very important to compare with Daniel chapter 2 and the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's vision was much different. Remember, what he saw was a statue like a man, and it had the head of gold, and then it went on with the different substances all the way down until there was this rock that grew into a mountain and destroyed it. And so, so this, these are comparative visions, but see, it, there's the way that the world sees things and the way that the Christian ought to see things, right? Nebuchadnezzar saw it, if you remember. In fact, he, thought, he was so excited to be the head of gold, he made this 90-foot by 9-foot image of himself or of his kingdom, which may have been the god of the, Babylon, the Babylonians. But this thing was huge, if you remember. It was all gold. Like he only heard. He heard what he wanted to hear. He saw what he wanted to see. But for the Christian... Daniel, in this case, he sees it for what it really is. Just four very broken, very reduced, very unnatural, very chaotic beast kingdoms. And the reason, I think, that God is giving him this vision is to remind him one king has risen, Nebuchadnezzar, and he saw him be changed. And now another king is in his place, and this king is not like Nebuchadnezzar. Belshazzar is, is, is much more arrogant. He doesn't listen at all. And so Daniel, the people of God, need to be comforted. Listen, a good king, or a not-so-good king, became a good king, is gone. And another king has taken his place, and he's not very good, but take heart. The story remains true. The outcome will be much the same. And Daniel writes this down and shares it with people. And you got to know, like, have you, have you ever met somebody that talks in these kinds of tones? And, like, like you're concerned about them, right? You're like, you, you had what kind of vision? There's medication, I think, for those things. I mean, and so this isn't something, I mean, this would have not, again, made him very popular necessarily with those around him. This sounds very gruesome. What's great about this is children read this stuff and they start drawing. We read it and we start backing up. Now, what's interesting about the first beast kingdom, which is something I think we can derive from it, I think the way he describes it does lend itself to Nebuchadnezzar himself, right? He starts out, and he has wings, and he's this awful beast, but someone has control over him. They pluck off his wings, and they make him stand, and this is beautiful, like a man. And they give him the mind of a man. Like, he's being restored, and we've talked about this in here before, that actually what's happening in redemption is not that you're becoming superhuman. No, you're actually just becoming human. 
And in your sin, you are much more beast-like than you understand. See, this is one of the things I think we miss about the story of the fall. Like when the serpent crawls up and starts talking, what it says is that, is that he says, you can become like God. You can, you can see as if they were blind. But what he's not telling them is, no, you can see the world as I, a beast, sees the world in all of its divisions, in all of its horror. And you can even see that the glory of God is not something beautiful, but something atrocious to be at war against. What we lost in the fall was our ability to see and be human. The image is still retained in us, praise God. And we know that because later on it says, thou shalt not murder because of the reason everyone bears the image. So it's not that the image is taken away from us, it's that we can't see it. We've gone blind in one sense, but we've been enlightened in another. We've been enlightened to our nakedness and our need for horrid self-focus, right? How many of you, you spend so much time thinking about yourself? You spend so much time worried about what someone else is going to think of you if you say or do certain things that you're paralyzed most of the time. You can't even share anything with anyone else, hardly, because you're so worried that they're going to see past that pitiful fig leaf that you've tried to cover up your brokenness with. And yet Christ sees past it and says, there's so much beauty there that's worth saving. So in this case, the beast was looked past and turned into true humanity for redemptive purposes. Nebuchadnezzar's testimony, like I said, I hope, he's, I hope he's there. And I hope he comes and corrects some things for us. And then the second beast kingdom and the third beast kingdom are described for us. And we could, we could get into, uh, I think it's this kingdom, I think it's that kingdom. I don't know that that's terribly beneficial to us, but what is very important is that you notice the language of sovereignty being used. They were allowed, they were made, they were told. Who's doing the allowing, the making, and the telling? God is. And we've said this in here before confessionally, the sovereignty of God is both that which raises the question and the only thing that can provide the answer. So the question, as many of you read this, you you would say, why would God say to this beast kingdom, arise and devour much flesh? That doesn't seem very nice. Seems there's got to be a better redemptive way, right? Because we go easy. We go, we, the first time we're told, we just get it, don't we? No, we don't, unfortunately. And there's oftentimes a necessity for judgment. And if that judgment weren't controlled, it would never, ever end. Because, left to us, we would destroy everything in our path like a beast. So, yes, it raises the question, but the sovereignty of God also keeps it from becoming the only reality, the only thing we're left with. So it's very important that you notice that language. Now, when it talks about the creation of the beasts themselves, it talks about the four winds of heaven blowing. This is imagery um, that you see again in Revelation chapter 7. When judgment is about to begin, the angels hold back the four winds. And so this is part of creation, unfortunately, that is oftentimes unleashed in terms of judgment. And it says that these winds stirred up the sea. Sea is oftentimes associated with chaos and the undoing of creation. And so these beasts 
are not here to, um, to build up creation or to display God's glory. They're here to destroy. And yet, like I said, the language tells us they are, under, they are firmly under the control of God with the exception of the fourth beast kingdom. As of right now, we're going to see later that in fact the fourth beast kingdom is well under the sovereignty of God. But that doesn't get said here just yet. And this fourth beast kingdom is more fearsome than all the ones that have come before because it will do much damage. And think about just this image. If you were having it, there's ten horns, and one of them grows out of it and plucks three of them out, and it's got a little mouth. Um, it just would be a very strange, strange thing indeed that would be very troubling. Um, and that's why I say I think it's good that kids read this and they immediately begin to draw to try to understand instead of recoiling. We would do well to be more childlike. Listen to what John Calvin prays when he preached on uh, this portion of text, uh, he prayed this prayer, and I think it's good for us to hear. Grant, Almighty God, since thou hast firmly admonished thy servants, that thy children, while they are pilgrims in this world, must be familiar with horrible and cruel beasts. If the same thing should happen to us, that we may be prepared for all contests, May we endure and overcome all temptations, and may we never doubt thy desire to defend us by, the protect, by thy protection and power according to thy promise. So again, we have to think again. What's the most important thing for us to take away from Daniel 7, 1 through 8? God is sovereign. These beasts don't have control. They don't get to decide. They're being told where and what they will do. We also need to recognize that God is also redemptive because that first beast kingdom, he changes from a beast into a man. So he's got the capacity and the power to redeem even the hardest of hearts. Never, ever, ever forget that. If you forget that, you will lose one of the, heart, the, the very heart of the gospel itself. Turn back to the text, if you would. Let's read verses 9 through 18. As I, Daniel, looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made me known to me the interpretation of things. These four great beasts are four, great, are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom 
and possess the kingdom forever and ever and ever. This is incredibly important uh, as he sees these beast kingdoms rising out of the earth, which is a very important language because it, these, are, these are just beasts of the earth, of the broken, fallen world. He raises his eyes to where the thrones are. Now, where are the thrones? The thrones are where God is. God who is sovereign and faithful over all things. So he turns his gaze from that which is so troubling on the earth and he looks to where God is. The ancient of days. Now, you should be hearing the New Testament text, Colossians 3 in this. Look not to the things of the earth, but look instead to the right hand of the Father where Christ is seated, where he preserves your life on high until he comes and you will be revealed in glory. See, this is, this is stuff that just shows up again and again and again. And we know that the Ancient of Days is a description of God. Isaiah 1 describes Him in the same way. Other texts, many texts throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament describe God with this same sort of just overwhelming beauty and glory. And the fire portion of this helps us understand this is judgment. There is judgment happening. Now, for the Christian, that's not something you should ever fear. For those of you who are in union with Christ, who have been given the assurance of your pardon, you need not fear judgment. You need not fear the fourth beast kingdom. You need not fear the man of lawlessness. You need not fear the Antichrist. You need not fear the numbers. You need not fear how much you're going to pay for wheat. You need not fear anything at all between the now and the not yet. That doesn't mean we don't, by the way, because... We sometimes turn our gaze to the things of the earth. And I would be lying to you if I didn't tell you that sometimes I am overwhelmed by what I see on the earth. I am overwhelmed by what I see in some of your lives. I am overwhelmed by how sometimes God's sovereignty raises far more questions than it gives answers, it seems. Remember, the antithesis to faith is not doubt. What is it? Pride, arrogance, to think that we know better than God, to think that we could keep promises that only God can keep, to think that we could do what only Christ can do. Remember that. And so here, Daniel is having his gaze turned upward, and what he sees is beautiful. It's still troubling to him because judgment must come. It should trouble all of us. None of us should with glee say, at long last, they will get their due. Might I warn you from Matthew 7 that Christ says, even to those who think they are, depart from me for I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. I don't care what you think you've done. So it is important for us as God's people to recognize what Paul says in Romans. It is not for us to exact revenge and justice. No, that is his alone to give. Between the now and the not yet, we should, we should seek to bring in as many as we possibly can to the truth of the gospel, but never compromising the truth of the gospel. Never dumbing it down or changing it so it makes the door bigger than Christ made it. Only he can decide the narrowness of the way. But we should see everyone, not as enemies, but as hopeful future brothers and sisters. 
So, remember that what he is seeing here is something we're called to look to as well. This is the book of Revelation in a sense. Right? The whole book of Revelation is a display of these things. Think about how you should hear Revelation 20. How many of you have that memorized? I'm just kidding. Don't show your hands. You're an overachiever. Uh, it's it's going to be thrown in fire. It's going to be dealt with. Sin and Hades, none of that will have a say beyond what God has said. You must end here. He's saying it even in the book of Daniel. Remember, Daniel's in exile. They're there for 70 years. I know the plans I have for you after 70 years to prosper you in a new place after 70 years of suffering. The generation I'm speaking this to, you're not going to see it or the next one either, but I know the plans I have for the coming generations. So Daniel sees the Ancient of Days in judgment and he sees that fourth beast kingdom destroyed. And then he sees one coming with the clouds. Remember, we read that just this morning in Revelation 1. What did it say? There's one who is coming with the clouds. And every tribe, even the ones who pierced him, will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So Daniel sees this one like a son of man. What's interesting about the use of that language is this man is nothing like a beast. He is like a man. He is not like the twisted and tortured and broken beings who are seeking to destroy the glory of God. No, he will display it in the fullness of his person and work. And because of that, the, the pleasedness of the Godhead to dwell within him, he will be given the kingdom and his enemies will be his footstool. And he will reign forever with the saints. Now what's really important here is in this very, very Jewish text the reality that it's going to include people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Don't miss that. Right? This is, this is the Abrahamic covenant continuing to weave its way throughout the whole of Scripture. Now, what does that tell us as to whom we should be for and against? We should be for people from every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. There should be no one that we say is left out because they are under the sway of the beasts. Because they're under sway of their fear, of their lostness. No, we should welcome them in in every opportunity that the sovereign God who is faithful gives, we should take. Because this is true. It's just Revelation 7. Every tongue, tribe, and nation represented, clothed in white, singing and worshiping before the Lord. And so here we have this vision of Christ. And for Daniel, it still shakes him. Now the reason that I think that it shakes him is that he recognizes that many more beast kingdoms must come before the Messiah comes that them returning to the promised land is actually not going to solve their problem after all. That everything they've been working toward, everything they've been counting on, will actually not be the thing that saves them. And that shakes him. Because more suffering is going to come. And so he knows that the people 
will struggle under the weight of this. He's struggling under the weight of it himself. And we, we too feel that tension between the now and the not yet, don't we? We too recognize as we look around, at least things around here are going to get really interesting. And they've been interesting. I don't know if you've been paying attention. They've been interesting for about, I don't know, since 1776. Right? Even the initial guys said there will come a day based on the current avarice in 1789. This was Benjamin Rush who said this. The current avarice of the people, and avarice just means their sinfulness, their brokenness, will someday require a tyrannical monarch again to rein it all back in. Benjamin Rush is a Christian. And he recognized that there would need to be yet another beast. Yet another monarch who puts a sword in his fist and reigns the people in for the sake of not letting it get too far out of hand. I don't know what all that means, and I don't want to live through it either, right? I'm hoping that, I don't, I don't want to tell you what I'm hoping. What I'm hoping for ultimately is Christ's return, right? And, and yet, I have a tension because if that, when he comes, that means it's over. Everyone who's, who is not part of the family, is, it's, it's over. So may the Lord tarry in the sense that the family can grow bigger. Remember, this church, every church has one job. Make disciples who make disciples. That's our job, right? Some of you are like, well, what about the worship of the Lord? That's part of discipleship, actually. To, to worship and not be concerned with whether or not someone is becoming a disciple who makes disciples is a dead-end street. Jesus made it very clear in the Great Commission. Let's not miss this. Now, some of you are troubled because you're introverts and you're exhausted from that women's retreat. I heard it was crazy. I get that you feel the tension of, what is he saying? Have I got to pass out tracts? Have I got to meet like 45 new people? Have I got to keep a database? Like, what have I got to do? No, what you've got to do is be obedient and, and do with the things that the Lord who is sovereign brings into your sphere of influence. To, to use and leverage what you already have. Don't worry about adding anything to it. Just like the parable of the talents. Some of you are going to have one, some of you are going to have five, some will have ten. God gifts everybody differently, but if everybody had this mindset, just minimally, how much stronger would the church be? Instead of leaving it to the upper one percenters to do because they're gifted at evangelism or they're gifted at being nice to people. Right? If, what if this was what we prayed for? For those of you who don't like talking to people, pray. Talk to God. Pray for those who are doing it. Pray that fruit would be born of what we are doing. And that people's lives would be radically transformed and changed so that those who stand before these open books and judgment are less than. When we start, and I know what you may be saying, but yeah, God's sovereign, He decides. So yeah, I get it. There's a real tension here. But God didn't say, hey, you guys hang out. I'm going to bring everybody in. Y'all just sit tight, try to stay out of the, you know, try to stay out of bars and weird places like that and just kind of live out your existence until I can come back and get you. No, what he said do was engage the world for the life of the world, for the life of the gospel. So what we, what we see here is the, the image of the coming Christ. 
who will make all things new. And so, how does the hope of this coming kingdom in Christ affect how you view the kingdoms of this earth? How does it affect your politics? How does it affect what you read? How does it affect what you post? It ought to. For those who are still on Facebook, the 12 of you. Uh, and so, how does it affect how you engage other people? How does it affect what you are most concerned about? How does it affect your hope, most importantly? Are you hopeful? Right? In a world, and listen, from an evangelistic perspective, for you to have hope with this coming election, people are going to think you're crazy. They're going to ask, hey, what medication are you taking? I'd like to get some of that too. But instead, what you can do is say, no, I've got hope. Because the, the, the king who sits on the throne continues to reign, though the kings and queens will rise and fall, and kingdoms will come and they will go. This one included. That one included. Those included. And yet, my hope is in the Lord. Not in whether or not I can still buy Froyo ice cream for a certain amount. It's not even ice cream. I got it wrong. It's like frozen yogurt, right? Yeah, so we just want our liberties. We don't want anything to change. It's got to. It has to change. Because we have gone asleep in the light. All this year, this will be quick. All these years of religious liberties, and what are we doing with them? And we're so concerned about losing them, not because we want to be more evangelistic, but because we want to be able to do what we've been doing for decades. It will be unto us if we do not preach the gospel, no matter what comes and what goes. We don't have to agree on all this, by the way. I know some of us may not, and that's okay. You've got to learn how to live in the tension because we don't know anyway. We're all looking through a glass half darkly, even on our best day. Myself, most of all. Turn back to the text and let us hear the end of the matter. 19 through 28. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up before, which, which out of the three fell, and the horn that had eyes and a mouth and spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High at that time, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of the kingdom ten kings shall rise, and another shall rise after them, and he shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and a half time. 
But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. What we see here at the end is pretty terrifying. That, that whatever this, this little horn that has mouths that tears up the other three that rises out of this terrible beast kingdom, he will be able to do great harm to the people of God for a season. Again, this should call to your mind Revelation chapter 12, where the serpent goes after the child, the woman who's giving birth to the child, and when he fails to destroy that child, the Christ child, he turns and makes war with the saints. And he will be successful to the extent that we understand success. There will be people who perish. There will be people who are harmed. There will be times in which the law and the times will be given into his hands. Now, is this something that has already happened? Or is this something that is to come? Was it Antiochus Epiphanes? Or is it the man of lawlessness? The Antichrist? I don't know. But what I do know is that Christ has not returned as of yet, and we're still here and we're not there. And what I do know is that this ain't yet heaven, and this ain't yet the kingdom that we want to reign in forever. Right? I like Kennesaw and all, but there's some things that could be better. I don't know if you've eaten at Burger Fine in a while, but their burgers have gotten really small, unheaven-like. <laughs> so, so here's the thing. What's the point of this? As much as he rages, his time has already been determined. He cannot exceed by one second greater than that which the Lord has already declared is the end for him. He cannot take one more life than was already allowed. Again, am I comfortable with that? Do I have a question for God about that? Do I sometimes struggle with that? You better believe I do. Because what if I'm one of those lives? Right, I'm up here uh, on whatever culture war that is unfolding and will someday happen. Robbie told us a terrifying story in staff meeting. I'm still mad at him about it. Uh, it's a good thing we're not taking communion. But he said that his teacher at Trinity, and I don't remember the teacher's name, was talking about a particular cardinal in Chicago. And he said, listen, that cardinal, he will die comfortably in his bed. You all, you will die in prison. The next generation will die as martyrs. Two weeks ago, guess what happened? That cardinal died comfortably at home in his bed. Now, I'm not saying that guy's a prophet. I don't think he's even looking into the future. He's just, re he's just understanding how the flow goes. And yes, there's a significant chance that Robbie and Matt, who are just getting started, and maybe even myself in my lifetime, may endure some sort of persecution that requires us to go to prison for what we believe. Am I prepared to do that? Well, some of you may say, yeah, you kind of seem prison-like at times. <laughs> Probably do okay. File a toothbrush into a shank, protect yourself. You can't do that, actually. Right? I'm not looking forward to that. I don't, I don't want to get into that. And I don't want you to either. And I saw many of you grab your children and kind of think, hey, what, what, what's going on here? And I get that. 
But what we've got to know is that God is sovereign and that God is good and that there is nothing in this world that, that loves his glory except his people. And everything, everything wants to destroy and erase that glory. That's why the language is used that this beast kingdom will trample everything on the earth in an attempt to destroy every evidence of God in his glory. That is the project after all. And you can't foolishly think that you have allies outside, ultimately, of those who bow the knee and confess Christ as Savior. You can coexist with peacemakers at times, but ultimately it is you who will be called to compromise, not them. So you've got to be careful how you think these things through. And remember what is most true, that God reigns and God is sovereign. So, yet again I ask, how does your understanding of God's sovereignty and faithfulness prepare you for suffering and persecution that may come? How is that preparing you? And again, don't go home and build a bunker and doomsday prep and all this kind of stuff. That's not what the people of God are called to do, actually. They're called to stay in the mix, right? Daniel doesn't try to flee. You've got to understand, with all of the freedom he was given, you don't think he couldn't have escaped Babylon? You don't think he couldn't have got out? But he didn't. In fact, he never gets out. Based on what we know, he dies in exile. He doesn't get to go home. He doesn't get to see the things rebuilt. But he prays for them and he calls for them, but he doesn't get to see them. And so, how does what we believe, how does our theology, which, by the way, is not just knowledge. Theology is that which you know which translates into how you live. How does our theology of God's sovereignty affect the fact that we are more than likely, as Christians, going to suffer. There was recently an article <clears throat> called You've Been Warned. I think it was Carl Truman who wrote the article, but the article was based on some statements made by a man named David Gushy. If you don't know who David Gushy is, he is a Baptist ethicist who has been revered for years. He's an, an academy guy, and he used to be conservative, for whatever that means, by the way. I hate those terms because I think we're all liberal on certain texts of Scripture, as it turns out, especially when it comes to the poor. But he used to at least hold to some conservative views, right? And so uh, he, his sister, I think it was his sister, came out. Um, and if you don't know, uh, um, October 11th is National Coming Out Day. Um, but his sister came out, and so when that happened, he, he began to rethink his views. And where he lands now is this, and this is why the title of the article is You Have Been Warned, and who said that was not called Truman, but David Gushy. And he said, I am, this is my message to my conservative brothers and sisters. You have been warned. You no longer will be able to hide at all as to what your views are about the current state of personhood and sexuality in America. We are coming for you, and you will declare what you believe. And when you declare what you believe, if it is not in line with what we believe, you will pay. You will suffer for what you believe. That may mean 
that you lose your tax-exempt status. That may mean that you are taxated at a higher rate because you are out of phase with what will become the EOC regulations on all these things. Or it may mean that you go to jail because what you believe is utterly inhuman. He says, and you have been warned, my brothers and sisters. David Gushy. And what's beautiful about this for those who are using him as the tip of the spear is they've been given wonderful credence by a man who is part of the academy and part of the church. He's an ethicist. He's a guy that gets called on by CNN and Newsweek whenever you want to have some sort of ethical position to show what the Christians think, because who knows what they believe, right? Because they don't show it quite enough. That's a problem. And so he's got tons and tons and tons of, of um, power in this. The language is very concerning to me. You've been warned. You can no longer hide. That's exactly what he says. And that's true. And so, it is very important for us to make sure that we are firm in not what we believe on a host of positions throughout society, but that we are firm in knowing that God is sovereign and faithful and that he is the one who decides what will happen to his people. And he will decide how far David Gushy and everyone else with him can go. But understand that sometimes that's much, much farther than we would prefer. Do I like it? No. Do I want to die comfortably in my bed next to Cardinal so-and-so? Not next to, that's kind of weird. But like Cardinal so-and-so? Absolutely, I'd love that. I'd love to go peacefully and for people to read my journals in the future and be like, oh, That's not, may not be the, the case. This is tough. Listen to what Dale Ralph Davis says about this. He says, seeing the secret behind history may not keep God's people from pain, but should keep them from panic. We may still be fearful, but should not be frantic. So, how do we apply these things? Three things. One, though evil kings and kingdoms will rise, they do not operate in their own power. That is critical for you to remember. I know it causes you to question. For those of you who are wicked like me, you immediately begin to invoke Hitler's name. Why was Hitler allowed to go so far? I don't know. But I know he was stopped. Why was Stalin allowed to go so far? No idea. But I know he was stopped. And if somebody hadn't stopped him, he would have kept going. There was no end to their bloodlust. And we could name a... Uh, many others, unfortunately. Number two, the Son of Man comes to redeem God's people from every tongue, tribe, and nation and put an end to the evil kings and kingdoms. There is a good, good end coming. It doesn't mean that all is sorrow between the now and the not yet because you're the people of God. You can have joy in the midst of suffering. You can take heart in the midst of the storm as no one else can. And that in and of itself is evangelistic. That in and of itself is glorious and draws people's gaze. Three, the people of God will suffer before God delivers us to reign with him in his kingdom. We will. And there's many texts that speak to that. You can't read the book of 1 Peter 
and not know that. You can't read much of the text in the New Testament and not know that. You can't read Jesus' words to those he loved in John 16 and not know this. You will be delivered over. And it's what Chris is frustrated about. You will be delivered over by those who say they're your brothers and sisters. It'll be David Gushy who puts you in jail, who claims the name of Christ. Sinclair Ferguson gives us this. He says, the people of God must learn that the kingdom of God is a kingdom of suffering. The forces of hell will not prevail against it, but they will do all in their limited power to overwhelm the saints. Suffering of one kind or another is integral to being a Christian. I hate that, by the way. I know you think I just love suffering and based on the stuff I read and the stuff I watch. It's like, man, you, I had a friend in high school who said, you stare into the abyss and what's worse, you yell out what's inside. Those of us who'd like to avoid it, you're messing, up the, you're messing everything up. I get it. I, I really don't like it. And sometimes maybe I talk about it in hopes of keeping it at bay, right? If I talk enough about it, God will be like, I think he gets it. Yeah, we won't mess with him. We'll move on to Robbie. <laughs> but that's not what God does, is it? He does love us. And he loves you. And the Ancient of Days has called for the Son of Man to reign. And he reigns now, by the way. There's an overlap, although it doesn't look like it according to Hebrews 2, as the author is honest. But he does. And God is sovereign and he's faithful. And he's good. And not all is lost. Daniel was able to thrive in exile. That's one of the beautiful things we've seen in this story. Is they tried getting rid of him. They tried throwing him in the lion's den. They tried to harm him. But God said no. But he understood that he could have been. And there were others that did get harmed. That's not for us to decide. It's for God to decide. May we rest in the sovereignty and the faithfulness of God as most exhibited in the person and work of Christ. I encourage you this Lord's Day Sabbath to take time to think about where God has been sovereign in the midst of your suffering. Right? In the past, you, you got to think about it. one of the beautiful days about the Lord's Day Sabbath is it's a day for remembrance. And that remembrance helps us get through the next week. Because I know many of you are suffering. Many of you are facing job loss. Many of you are facing sickness. Many of you are facing all sorts of things that rattle our cages to the core and make us wonder, God, where are you? Why me? Why now? But this day, this day is freedom from those questions so that you can look back and say, God, let me remember all the places where you have been faithful and come through in the midst of my suffering so that as I face this current suffering, I can do it to your honor and your glory. Let's pray. Father, this is a troubling text, not only for Daniel, but for us too. Again, we try to explain it away. We hope that it's something that's happened in the past and we're just living in some sort of purgatorial now and not yet that doesn't require a lot of suffering, but we're just waiting on you to show back up. I wish it was that way too, but I don't think that it is. I don't think your word teaches us that. God, help us suffer well. 
Help us remember that we will never suffer to the degree that Christ suffered and that ultimately the most ultimate suffering of all is off the table for us as Christians. And we have been, as this text even says, we have been installed as saints in an an eternal kingdom. May we take heart in that. Help us, God, also to care about what you care about, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Help us not be fearful, but instead share the gospel. Share the gospel of Jesus Christ, not the gospel of right, left, middle, slight right, slight left, whatever it may be. But instead, let us cling to what we know is true and what you have shown and proved time and time and time again. God, may your Holy Spirit work deep in us to help strengthen buckling knees and weakened hands. God, help us love each other and love the world well, as you have. In Christ's name, amen.